This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property, whether it's local, regional, national or international. I'd like to have a bit of a chat about things that have been in the news. It's lovely having your company here today. I want to start off with something a little bit local. In this article from Stuff, the government fast-tracks plans to extend Wellington's commuter rail network to Levin. This is some quite exciting news for people in our wider region. The government is fast-tracking a bold plan to extend Wellington's commuter network to Levin and the growing population north of the capital. For quite a number of years now, there's been an urban spread up the coast, the west coast, uh, heading up towards Levin as property prices are becoming more and more unaffordable closer to Wellington. So the electrification and boosting the network beyond Waikanae will be considered as part of a million-dollar business case wanted by Transport Minister Michael Wood and welcomed by regional leaders. Kiwi Rail had plans to look at the business case in three years, but Wood now wanted it started in the coming months to be delivered next year. The plan is part of the government's inaugural rail network investment programme, a wide-ranging suite of upgrades and renewals scheduled to take place across the country over the next three years. Wood, who announced the programme on Thursday, said the investments would include the investigation to electrifying the rail line from Waikanae to Levin. Wellingtonians consistently tell us that they really value the rail network, but we know that we can get more out of it, Wood told Stuff on Wednesday ahead of the announcement. We've got significantly growing communities in the northern part of the region, and they don't currently have access to the commuter rail network. So that would potentially bring huge benefits to these communities in terms of being able to access fast, efficient, clean public transport and get around the region. It's a bit early to say when work would begin or what the commuter service would look like, but it would enable more frequent and faster services, he said. So what effect would that have here? Well, at the moment, the commuters catch the capital connection from Levin into Wellington. And it runs from Palmer's North to the capital every morning and returns in the evening. That's capital connection. So the council had its own plan to team up with Horizons Regional and one or two district councils to run a commuter service between Waikanae and Levin by 2025. As part of that, it was lobbying the government for 15 new battery electric trains it wants to operate on the Kapiti and Wire Rapper lines by 2025. So we'll have to see what happens and which the government tends to prioritise there. But either way, it really does show that the prices in Horafanua for housing are uh, considerably cheaper. In Wellington, where the average house price is $1.18 million. on the Kapiti Coast it's 917000 in the Horafanua district, 619,000. And Horafanua Mayor Bernie Wandon said the announcement was great news for a region expecting its population to increase from 36,000 to 60,000 by 2050. So it's pretty good to keep an eye on that one, see what happens. And uh, certainly with regards to the roading uh, aspect of, of things, it'll be interesting there as well as the bypass road continues to be built. That is the road that's bypassing Otaki and hopefully will continue on and bypass Levin. Also this week, 
there was the report from the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand that shows which regions are performing the best for residential investors. They look across two criteria. One is capital gains, that is the value of the property increasing, and the other is the yields, or what you might call cash flow or rate of return. So the yields being a percentage that on the investment. It's really the trade-off between the purchase price and the rental amount. So for the first time since the third quarter of last year, the West Coast has topped the list as the best region for investors. This is according to voxy.co.nz, who are quoting the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. Yields in the West Coast region were 5.4%. That's the only region with a yield in excess of 5 Additionally, capital gains in the West Coast increased 26.3% for the three months ending March 2021, when compared to the same time last year, median prices going from 229000 to 289250 and that makes it the standout region for residential property investors in New Zealand. In second equal place in terms of providing strong returns for investors were Gisborne and Manawatu Wanganui. Gisborne had the highest capital gains in the country, at 39.5%. That's from a median house price of 430000 now at 600000 Manutu Wanganui was a region that topped the list last quarter, but this time it saw the third highest capital gains in the country, up 29.4% to 550000 and the sixth highest yield in the country at 3.8%. At the other end of the scale... The Real Estate Institute of New Zealand Capital Gains and Rental Yields report found that Tasman had the fifth to lowest capital gains, the second to lowest annual yield, making it the worst performing region for residential property investors. So there we go, a little bit of uh, information there as well. And the smaller regions continue to do very well, according to Wendy Alexander from the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. So that's where uh, the capital gains that we've had in this area, Manawatu Wanganui, close to 30%, still are very fantastic for people that own property in this region, but not so good, of course, if you are looking to buy particularly your first house. 30% increase means that for every $100,000 of house value a year ago, it's now 130. Quite a huge uh, difficulty there to get into properties. But not only that, this article here from stuff.co.nz by Catherine Harris says, Consumers set to pay as builders have a supply chain reaction. So builders are talking of bringing back clauses which pass rising costs onto consumers as prices for building supplies continue to soar. In the days of high inflation, the escalation clauses were standard in contracts and that is starting to happen again, Grant Florence, the chief executive of Certified Builders, said. He said the clauses fell into disuse as low inflation kept prices down, but as global supply chain problems sent freight costs skywards and dragged out delivery times, they were set to return. Now what has been happening uh, up until now, and it is actually happening now, but they may bring this uh, the, the rising cost uh, clauses in, but what, what would normally happen is you would agree on a price for a build with a builder or a building company, and that price stays the same if it's a home and land package until the property is complete. What that means is often the uh, value of the property has gone up significantly, but for the builders, the costs can actually go up and it cuts into their margins. 
So why is this being considered? Well, shipping companies are charging more to get goods into and around the country due to delays at the log-jammed ports of Auckland. A key one was steel, which affected the cost of nails to screws to brackets. Steel's going up because you've got China and Australia. China gets its iron ore from Australia. Australia annoys China. It's charging them more for their ore, and so China sticks up their steel 12 times the price, and we have to pay for that. It's a scarce shortage. Like when COVID hit, everybody bought toilet paper. We've got to understand that we're one of the biggest building booms in history since the Second World War. And those comments um, were by the Queenstown builder, Miles Herschel of MWH Construction. There were long wait times for some supplies, with appliances taking about 25 weeks, Herschel said. Smart builders were planning around it by ordering materials in advance and having other work lined up while they waited. However, to him, the bigger cost driver was subcontractors, which was out of control, reflecting the increasing complexity of housing designs. I don't think materials are inflating any quicker than the skill shortage and lack of skilled labour, he said. Another Queenstown builder who declined to be named said absolutely everything was rising in price and he predicted massive issues with affordability and sourcing skilled labour in the coming months. Price hikes vary depending on the product. According to the Building Industry Federation, Steel products have jumped up in price by 15 to 21%. Concrete and cement products are up 7%. And prices for decking, timber and plywood up between 6 and 20%. And as its own costs go up, Carter Holt Harvey is notifying customers of 10% hikes in timber and plywood and 6 to 10% rises in LVL lumber from September to October. Now the spectre of inflation caused by supply issues is affecting other sectors too. In a recent survey, most retailers expected prices to rise an average of around 7.5% in the next three months to cover soaring freight costs. And these costs are being watched closely by the Reserve Bank while it contemplates rising the interest rates. So it's really um, difficult when you're looking at uh, uh, building there, and it's really important to know what you're getting yourself into financially, and uh, particularly if they start bringing those clauses in, what the actual effect could be to your bottom line as you continue to move through that process. So that's uh, overall building costs in the six main centres just rose 2% in the year to October 2020, slower than the previous two years. But general building materials rose 4.7% in the year to September, while labour costs rose 2.8%. So it's getting more expensive for building, and that makes it uh, tricky indeed. Speaking of soaring prices, this article by Miriam Bell says that Wellington's red-hot housing market records the third fastest house price in, sorry, price rise in the world. I'll just say that again. So soaring house price in Wellington means the city now has the third hottest market in the world, an international property consultancy says. Wellington's house prices in the first quarter of this year were up by 30.1% on the same period last year, according to the latest Knight Frank Global Residential Cities Index. That increase has lifted Wellington to the third place in the global rankings. Last year, the city was ranked at number 32, with prices increasing 7.6%. Auckland was also high up in the index, which tracks the residential property prices across 150 cities worldwide. Auckland's 19.6% rise in prices gave it ranking of 11, up from 101 last year where prices increased by 2.1%. Two Turkish cities, Izmir and Ankara, topped the index while prices were up more than 10% in 
in 43% sorry 43 of the cities tracked it's pretty uh, amazing that the prices are still going up the way that they are and what's happening around the world some, some governments are taking more interventionist stances and New Zealand, Canada, China, South Korea and Ireland have all taken steps to curb price inflation in the first half of 2021. That's according to Everett Allen, uh, who I just want to make sure I can refer quite to who he is. He's the Knight Frank researcher. So in New Zealand, the Reserve Bank reinstated the loan-to-value ratio restrictions earlier this year, and in March the government announced a suite of new housing and tax policies intended to rein in the market. But Everett Allen said what was most critical was the extent to which some cities continue to suffer from a severe undersupply of housing and the slowdown in construction exacerbated by the pandemic. Wellington and Auckland have long struggled with housing supply shortages and stock is near record lows according to industry research. There were just 720 houses for sale in Wellington in June, a decline of 14.3% on last year. And that percentage decline is uh, similar in this region as well. Independent economist Tony Alexander said Wellington's shortage of listings was likely to be a factor in the city's leap up the rankings. And the Wellington market had also gone through a catch-up period in recent years that had resulted in an escalation of house prices, he said. So it's interesting to see what's going to happen there. Canada has reported two months of moderating sales. In the United States, mortgage applications have fallen back to their pre-COVID levels, suggesting the distortive effect of the pandemic may be diminishing. So we'll just have to see there what's uh, how we go. But uh, going back to the earlier story, it's uh, difficult to build houses. The build times take longer, supplies and the people to build them. Uh, there doesn't seem to be too much hope in sight for things slowing down anytime soon. So we're going to take a break now. We're going to have a little bit of a listen to LAB. We went to the concert recently in Wellington. It was fantastic. We're going to have the song In The Air.
and you're back. You're listening to Property Matters on NPR Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo irirangi o nga tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. And we were talking before the break about house prices being pretty astronomical in this part of the world. But it wasn't that long ago, in fact just over a year ago, that I featured on this show an entire street of houses near Westport that was put on the market. And at the time, the real estate agency's phone was ringing off the hook. But the street of 10 properties at Cape Fowland didn't sell because the soaring house prices, or the soaring market, prompted the owners to change their minds. Gary Howard of Property Brokers Westport says some good offers were received, but movement in the market meant that while the sale price of $2 million might have been entertained, it became more, a more attractive option for the company Cape Fowland No. 2 Limited. Oh, sorry about that. To subdivide and to sell the ten properties for four hundred and fifty thousand plus each. They managed to do that, of course. That's well over doubling the price in a year. The three-bedroom concrete block houses in Larson Street have been renovated over the past year. They're fully insulated, twenty twenty-one rental compliant, with new carpets and paints. Is how they're very well presented. Four of the houses were listed in April now have agreements in place, and Howard has just listed eight Larson Street for sale with inquiries invited over 450000 He says the property is already receiving strong interest. But there is a catch. The homes don't have individual titles yet, as the subdivision process is not completed, which means the buyers cannot settle. However, Howard says it's hoped titles will be in place by the end of the year. It is possible that we can come to an arrangement as to how a buyer could potentially move in in the meantime, Howard says. The agencies and developers deciding whether to list the remaining houses soon or wait until all the titles are in place. The properties, you might recall, were originally built in the early 1960s for the Cape Fowlin Cement Works at Westport. But Holcomb used the plant in 2016 and, I'll close the plant I should say, and the assets are being sold. In the listing, Howard points out the local attractions include a beach, short stroll away, the Star Tavern, the Lighthouse Walkway and the Karateri Coastal Trail. So uh, quite interesting just to have a bit of a catch-up on that. So if they had gone and accepted one of those offers at $2 million just around about a year ago, they're now looking at well over $4 million. And that just shows, again, where that market has been going. And, and Westport and the West Coast, as I mentioned earlier in this show, has got fantastic capital gains, or has had. This next article, BNZ, has joined ASB in predicting that the OCR, the official cash rate, will rise in November. Both banks now forecast the first rate rise will come when the central bank issues its final money policy statement for the year in late November. The OCR is at a record low of 0.25% and the Reserve Bank said in March last year that it would remain on hold for 12 months while the country grappled with the effects of COVID-19. But the recovery has happened more quickly and has been stronger than expected, with gross domestic product rising 1.6% in the March quarter. The catalyst for ASB and BNZ bringing forward their forecast for OCR hikes came in the form of a quarterly survey of business opinion, which was published by the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research recently. It showed firms were, most, were more confident but struggling to find staff amid acute skills shortages. Research head Stephen Topless said that it had known that the NZIER survey would support its view that the economy was overheating, but it reveals an economy even hotter than our already hot perceptions, he said. The Reserve Bank should buckle, Topless said. 
We actually think the conditions are ripe to tighten now. This would probably be a leap too far for the bank. So we'll have to see what happens. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're a little bit off the mark. So a net 39% of firms increased selling prices over quarter two, up from a net 7% previously, and larger lift than expected. And this is an indicator that's consistent with annual CPI inflation lifting around 3.4%. So the economists feel the risk of inflation pressures will move higher. That will mean that OCR might go up. However, conversely, the Kiwi Bank Chief Economist Jared Kerr said he expected an OCR increase in May, but there was a growing risk that it would happen later this year. So we'll just have to see uh, where things go. Finally, an opinion piece by Daniel Dunkley, this on stuff.co.nz. He says it's a time for a mindset shift on apartments. In 1972, the British author, lecturer and politician Austin Mitchell coined the phrase the half-gallon quarter-acre pavlova paradise to describe his adopted country of New Zealand. The saying stuck, summarising how most Kiwis tend to think about property, notably their right to a detached home on a large section. Being from Bradford in the north of England with its vast rows of terraced houses and council-owned apartment blocks, Mitchell must have been somewhat amused by the Kiwi approach to property and the entitlement to that slice of paradise. Although the quarter-acre dream is way out of reach for most of us 50 years on, the same attitudes persist. Even many younger Kiwis seem to believe their first property will be a family home with room to grow into. But that expectation doesn't line up with reality, however, with the national house price-to-income ratio surpassing 12.4, according to a recent Massey University study. With the housing shortage most pronounced in New Zealand's biggest cities, the obvious solution to the nation's property woes is to build up. Everywhere else in the developed world, people are more than content living in multi-storey blocks. In London, roughly 4 in 10 residents live in a flat. The trend towards apartment living could accelerate as cities such as Auckland implement new urban development policies to build multi-storey blocks. Apartments are a great way for cities to maximise space and breathe life into urban centres and provide an easier pathway onto the property ladder. Unfortunately, though, the drive to push Kiwis towards apartment living has stuttered in recent decades due to the cultural aversion to flats, poor quality building standards, NIMBYs fighting against the high-density housing, and partly because of the actions of our banks. Banks have been reluctant to lend on small apartments, imposing restrictions that make many purchases impossible. Most ask prospective buyers to stump up a 50% deposit before they're willing to lend on smaller flats. Encouraging then that the ANZ relaxed its lending criteria for smaller apartments last week, the bank lowered its deposit requirement for small, small flats to 20% from 50%, and that's a really significant change, provided the apartment is bigger than 38 square metres. ANZ trumpeted its decision to do our bit to help people onto the property ladder, but said restrictions would remain for non-standard apartments. The bank explained that some restrictions were needed as apartments carried higher risks, such as the ability for the property to maintain its value and increase over time, building defects, the quality of the body corporate and the leasehold tenure. So most New Zealand lenders have tight rules on apartments. BNZ, for example, typically requires a 35% deposit if a flat is smaller than 50 square metres. Westpac asks for 50% for apartments smaller than 40 square metres. And Kiwi Bank and ASB will only allow 20% deposits for flats bigger than 40 square metres. So the prohibitive lending rules may have kept many would-be buyers out the market. Someone looking to buy a small one-bedroom apartment for 
$400,000 would need to lay down a bigger deposit than a couple buying a house worth 900000 in most cases, which seems hardly fair. So like I say, it's a bit of a uh, an opinion piece, but they do go on and quote Scott Dunn of City Sales, a real estate agency specialising in apartments. And he welcomes ANZ's recent change, which he predicts will bring a new segment into the apartment market, which was restricted to investors. We think that other banks should follow suit, Dunn says. However, 30 square metre limit is still on the larger end in the Auckland CBD. Banks are associating the size of an apartment with the quality of the apartment, but there is no correlation. So interesting stuff then with regards to how to fit more people into land. And I know from living overseas when I lived in Europe for a period of time, even cities the size of Hamilton or smaller would still have many multi-rise apartment buildings because it was just a very efficient way of um, housing a lot of people. And in this country, I guess we're just used to having so much land that we'd prefer to go out rather than up. But certainly the reduction of restrictions by ANZ and possibly by some others in the future means that that can be a good first home option, so to speak, that then you could sell and buy again after you've built up some equity to then move on and to have a family. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. You've been listening to Greg Watson on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi on Ngā Tangata or Manawatu, and you can also find this where all good podcasts are found. Thanks so much and have a great week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.